This is the Muscles and Management Podcast, where we build your body and your business. Talking all things training, sports performance, and business for athletes and aspiring coaches to enhance your training and better your career. Muscles and Management is brought to you by Challenger Strength with your host, Jerry DeFilippo. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 87 of the Muscles and Management podcast. As always, please rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, I appreciate it as always. Um, not going to spend too much time, you know, with this intro this week. There's a great episode awaiting you with Pete Dupuy of Cressy Sports Performance. I think the biggest thing that I will say about Pete that I love is the, you know, I, I like to fancy myself a strength coach who makes things complicated things, easy to understand for uh, coaches, sport coaches, athletes, parents who are working with their athletes, other strength coaches, et cetera. Like I try to make complicated things easy to understand. Like they're complicated. They pass through my head and they become the same uh, quality, but they become less complicated and easier to understand via analogies like the one I just gave you um, and things like that. And I think Pete does a really good job of making business things you know, giving them that same type of feel where uh, Pete is going to kind of talk to you about a lot of stuff in this episode, like whether you're a coach who has a business, you're an entrepreneur, you're a strength coach in the private sector, but uh, even if you're not and you're just a strength coach who is working on their brand, a sport coach who is working on their brand online, um, you're an athlete with business aspirations someday, like sports will come to an end someday. If you're an athlete who's listening to this, you're a minor league athlete, a professional athlete. Um, you know, you're a high school athlete with pro professional aspirations, like sports do come to an end. And even while you are playing sports, like branding yourself is really important and how you go about running business and handling finances and, and all things like that. And I think that is just really important to just listen to Pete and what he has to say and the experiences that he's had. We both found out while we were recording that we both went to Babson. He graduated. I ended up transferring and finishing at Rutgers Business School, but he ends up meeting Eric Cressy at Babson uh, their freshman year. Eric ends up transferring out after a sophomore year, much like I did, to go pursue exercise science, and they reconnected after school was over to basically collaborate on the venture that is Cressy Sports Performance and all that it has become. He's going to take you on a little bit of a journey on what went into that, um, and, and also talk a little bit about Babson, what he learned at Babson, the entrepreneurial experiences that he had and, um, you know, how, you know, you have to understand that even at a school like Babson, like the elite caliber of the business school that is Babson, that um, not everything, and he talks about this, like not everything that like every good decision that we would make as business people being two people that went to Babson is going to be said is like, Hey, I directly learned that from my education, what was in a textbook, what my professor said. It's more of, you know, application and experience and going through a lot of processes, processes, whatever you want to say. Um, much like strength training is how I always say like reading from a book is one thing, but you don't really get the full effect of it or learn the things that you're going to apply to make you who you are and make you the level of a coach you are until you just experience them and apply them with athletes. And he talks about that. And um, I, I think overall, the message of the episode, the experiences, things he talks about and that we talk about with business owners and COVID-19 and the coronavirus and kind of coming out on the other side of this and, and tips for that and just the overall I guess, message of always being on your toes and not knowing what to expect and how things change and just listening to the dynamic that is people are going to respond to what you do in a certain way and you have to listen to that and capitalize on it and go in the direction that it seems to be taking you. And um, he talks about that a lot about of, of just 
building a business and being a better coach and not focusing on fancy things, but focusing on basic things and, and what makes people come back to you and the relationships you build. And I think it goes beyond business here and, and it's going to be a good listen for any coach, um, you know, in, in the private sector, in the school settings, whatever it is. So without further ado, I, I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Pete is amazing. As I said, Cressy Sports Performance, you can check him out on Twitter, Pete Dupuy. Um you know, listen to what he has to say, try to take some of it in. And like I said, follow him on Twitter too, because he puts out some great stuff that is very easy to understand and conceptualize when it comes to business and just certain things that do's and don'ts and things he's learned. So uh, I hope you guys enjoy this. Um, as If you haven't yet, check out episode 86, Meathead Monday, another Q&A this week. And then we'll be back next week on Monday for another Meathead Monday as usual. And uh, Wednesday will be a solo episode with me talking base, a, so, sort of a solo episode, um, a phone conversation I had that we turned into a mini interview, Brian Eisenberg, uh, having me talk through how I, uh, program and how I individualize programming and the steps I take to do that. So I thought that'd be a fun episode for you guys. Um, I hope you enjoy this one. Pete was fantastic. As I've said, um, you know, take notes, learn from it and, and really take what he's saying and try to apply it into your life whether you're a business owner or not. Um, I hope you guys enjoy this one, and I will talk to you next time. Peace. All right, everyone. Excited to welcome on Pete Dupuy. Pete, thanks so much for your time. Look, Really been looking forward to having you on and uh, kind of excited to get going. So thank you. I appreciate you having me, Jerry. My pleasure. Um, so something that I generally do, whether it's a strength coach, a sport coach, um, I, I like to get a little bit of an idea of their background and, you know, what kind of, especially with the strength coaches, like, did they go to school, uh, you know, get a degree in exercise science, kinesiology, just kind of find about, you know, find out about that. Um, but seeing as this is more of a business geared episode and you're, um, very heavily involved as a, as a business personality and as a business person, did you go to business school? Like what was, what's your background in terms of education and kind of what pushed you down, you know, your kind of current road? Sure. Well, I, I actually did it twice. I was a undergraduate business school, graduate of Babson College. In oh, I went to Babson. <laughs> there we go. We didn't do our homework. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I was an 03 undergrad and I was an 07 MBA there. That's awesome. One year MBA as well. And um, that's that's where I met my business partner, Eric Cressy. So um, we are we are collectively Babson Beaver alums. <laughs> that's awesome. And what year did you wrap up there, Jerry? So my story is pretty interesting. I went there for two years and I played baseball there, um, had a freak ankle injury, kind of got homesick. Long story short, I ended up transferring back. I finished up my last two years at Rutgers Business School uh, back in Jersey. So I, I was there two years from 2012 to 2014. Got it. So I'm sure it was a very different place at that point. Yeah. A decades time is, is certainly a good way to change the look and feel of uh, any college and Babson in particular, based on my last drive through. But I, uh, I decided on business school, honestly, <laughs> I hate to say it, but a lot of my decision factor uh, or the factors were driven primarily by the aesthetics of the campus. I, I thought the dorms were nice. I thought it looked pretty, you know, you, you pull up to Babson that first time and you can't really delineate between what's the Wellesley Country Club and what is Babson. So it basically looks like you're living on a golf course. Yeah. And so I was drawn into that initially. And basically, like any other 18-year-old, I feel like, on the planet, I had no idea what I really wanted or needed in a college. 
And thankfully, my dad gave me a nudge and he said, look, if I if I could go back in time and do it all over again, I would have got a business degree. I would have gone somewhere where I could get that that bachelor of science in business management and effectively jump into the workforce with marketable talents as opposed to a, I guess you could say, an, an arbitrary liberal arts degree that, that may or may not translate. And so since I didn't really have any firm understanding of what it was exactly that I wanted to do coming out of college, I trusted his guidance and his feedback. And he seemed pretty firm on it, that he wished he could go back in time and do that. And and he'd hate to see me make a, a similar decision to his own without any type of framework. And so I, I took his advice. I went to business school and it's it's unbelievable the the way that Babson impacted my kind of trajectory professionally. And nobody goes to Babson thinking they're going to get into the fitness industry. But I was randomly assigned freshman year to live with Eric Cressy in Forest Hall. And <laughs> we, we, we were forced into a triple with another guy from the United Arab Emirates. And so you learn a lot about yourself when you get thrown in into a force triple with, with two strangers, one of which is from Dubai. And uh, basically, Eric and I got to vet each other out unknowingly for that full freshman year of college. And then again, we lived, we lived effectively like two doors down our sophomore year as well before he transferred out after a sophomore year like you. And uh, when he did ultimately move on to pursue exercise science and I was still there, we, we still stayed in touch and decided to kind of maintain a, a dialogue over the years. And I guess it was four and a half or four years later, we, we opened up Cressy Sports Performance following our graduation. So uh, it, it's funny, it started at business school, but I never for a second went there thinking this is how I position myself appropriately to open a gym someday. I kind of fell into that. Yeah, that that's interesting. I mean, obviously interesting to me because it, it's very similar to a lot of experiences that I had actually, and I didn't know that. Um, I I am endearingly called a half of Babson graduate by one of my uh, colleagues that went to Babson as well. So they joke around me all the time and call me a half of Babson graduate. Um, I so I I obviously I loved it there. It was just more so kind of uh, bad luck and circumstances, and like I said, just just kind of wanted to get back home. Um, and I want to ask you, I found out about, I had never heard of Babson before. And that's honestly, it's either people know really, know it really well, or they've never heard of it um, when you bring it up. And I only heard about it because I was recruited there to play baseball. And I remember getting the recruiting email. I sent it over to my mother and she like did a search on the school and, and she kind of like, I have the same kind of story you did about uh, your father recommending business. She responded back to me and said, man, like this is a really, really, really good business school. And I think you should push for business because you don't know what you want to do. And there's a lot you can do with it. Um, and I had a very similar experience. But how did you hear about Babson? Um, like, where did you come to learn of it? And did you just live closely to it? Or, or what was the story with that? Well, I I applied to a, a bunch of schools locally. I was I looked at a lot of bees. So Babson. Boston University, Brandeis, Bentley. I was I was looking at uh, both playing soccer at these schools and then the academics as well. And Bentley was was one that was fairly common to apply to, having grown up in the suburbs of Boston. And 
Babson and Bentley kind of were, were perceived to be a little bit of a package deal as far as the application process goes. You apply to one, you apply to both. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bentley is better known for its accounting, whereas Babson's better known for its entrepreneurial studies. And I'd imagine when your mom did her search of Babson College, she saw that it's got this this like decades running track record of, of winning best entrepreneurial studies yeah. program in the country or being top one, two, three for your, it was like years 20, years. 20 years when we, when we looked it up, it was like 20 years already. <laughs> exactly. And so, uh, that was obviously appealing. The funny thing is having been a, an entrepreneur and a small business owner for coming up on 14 years now, I didn't take any of the entrepreneurial course kind of track classes at Babson at any point. And I didn't go there with the mentality I was going to start my own business. That was that was something that happened later down the road. And and you get a lot of entrepreneurial experience and relevant information in just going the traditional core curriculum route. Yeah. But there wasn't a moment that I ever said to a professor, I'm going to start a business someday of, of any sort. I figured I'd fall in line and jump into a cubicle and collect my my biweekly paycheck and matching 401k and just live that supposed American dream. And I did it for a couple of years, realized I, I hated it more than anything in the world. And I decided to avoid reality and go back to school and get my MBA. <laughs> so I did it. I didn't, I didn't go back to grad school thinking I need this small collection of skills to put myself in a better position for the next thing. I was really just saying to myself, God, I, I cannot stand my job. Uh, you know, prospects aren't that fantastic for work at this moment. So why not go back to school and, and, you know, put a year of studies under my belt, do some networking, get to know people and see what happens. And, and I did that. And then sure enough, the economy took a complete dive and we fell into a huge recession right as I was about to graduate and didn't even feel it because I opened a gym right then and there. And, and we had double digit growth year over year for, for God, our first seven plus years, we were doing just like this, this massive growth trajectory. And, uh, in the early stages, we somehow overlooked the fact that this great recession came and went and we had built our business kind of our, the foundation of it created in the midst of it. Mm -hmm. And we were just too, too distracted and naive to realize it had happened. Yeah. That's, that's incredibly interesting. I would say maybe, I mean, we're not going to know how things kind of come out on the other side of all of this going on with coronavirus, but like someone starting a business uh, or a gym in, you know, at the end of this, or even like whether it was you tweeted it or I've seen others tweet it as well, like the idea of looking at this as an opportunity. And I've said this to myself um, as well, like when I've been going through my thought process with my business is looking at it as like, you know, this, these circumstances, how unique they are, you know, we just, we talked before we started about Zoom, um, what's going on. Like you can really, if you, if you plan it the right way, you can come out of this with an entire new aspect of your business, right? Like you have to look at that, but you, like you alluded to have a plan and don't just rush into it, like plot something out that is going to be fruitful for you for years to come when this is over. Sure. I mean, what's, I guess you could say Adapt or die. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the the crazy thing is, I think we we use this this like, oh, a lot of gyms are going to fail. Historically, it's kind of been hyperbole, where it's it's so easy to say, oh, idiots run gyms. Nobody thinks about the future. They're not running these efficiently. But this is a whole different circumstance. This is quite literally going to kill a lot of gyms. Yeah. 
and and I can I can see it on the wall every day of the week now about about how there are certain gym owners that whether their business is open or not in the next six months is almost contingent upon whether they get PPP to come through. Yeah, and and it's pretty wild that a coin toss as to whether your application gets seen or not in this massive influx of of small business owners who are looking for the same thing is really going to determine whether you have a livelihood under the, you know, within the confines of your gym as it was three, four months ago, it's, it's all shifted. And so we could kind of blindly say, yeah, we're going to just keep doing what we were doing. We just need them to open this place back up. Or we could acknowledge the fact that we very well may get shut down again at the end of the summer or fall. If, if this all kind of flares back up, we could be right where we are right this second. And if there are people who thought that they could just weather the storm for round one and be perfectly fine, I mean, if round one didn't get them, round two is definitively going to shut their business down. So if you're not adjusting your approach and thinking about how you can drive some revenues digitally and things like that, then you can pretty much kiss it goodbye if this happens again. And it's, it. I mean, who knows? But it feels to me the way 2020 has gone, I am going to always expect the worst and be pleasantly surprised if it doesn't happen. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a, a good thought process. Not that you want to walk around with like the dark cloud over your head and the negativity. It's just more of preparation and, um, you know, expecting these things to happen and just looking at like the recent track record of what's going on. So I, I agree with you uh, tremendously there. I, I did want to ask you one thing now that uh, I, we found out that we share this, this Babson connection, that's a whole new can of worms of questions that I want to ask you. Um, when you first got to Babson, did they have the uh, FME foundations of management and entrepreneurship class for freshmen? Was that a thing yet or? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause, oh, yeah. Cause that was FME huge for me. Huge. That had a huge impact on me um, and, and what I've learned and everything. So I, I kind of wanted to ask you about your experience with that and what maybe your business was. Yeah, well, I guess for the sanity of your listeners, I'll explain what FME is. Yep, I was going to ask you what too, it was. So, in, so thank you. <laughs> in the fall of 1999, as I date myself, uh, I'll tell you how FME was constituted then, and I I can't say that's the same way now. But effectively, every every freshman in the uh, the class of 2003, we walked on campus. And we were batched into FME classes that had two professors. Yep. And if my memory serves me right, somewhere between 50 and 60 people. Exactly what class. I had. Yeah. And, yeah. And so it, they fit very nicely into one of those those kind of semi-circular lecture hall type setups where the teacher can speak to three levels of students staring at them. And they cut our group in half. And that was two businesses. And they said, all right, you... I think they gave us twenty five hundred or five thousand dollars of operating expenses, and pretty much just said, "Go wild." Yep. You you know you need to you need to have a you need to design a business, so conceive a business idea, which I think we pitched to the professor. Did a, a rocket pitch, but, right? With three people, I think I had three people in my group. Yeah, yeah. So Something we like we pitched yeah. concepts. One was selected, or I should say, two were selected for our class. Yep. And then it was up to us as students to just hammer out, like, what does this organization look like? Who is responsible for managing the books? Who is going to do the marketing? Who's going to get out there and hit the pavement and sell whatever it is that you've conceptualized? And so, in and, and it ran a semester. I think it was 
second semester of freshman year. Is that right? Yeah. It wasn't the whole year. Yeah. So in my experience, we, we, we broke down and like you said, 60, 60 students, uh, we had 20 different groups. You narrow those 20 different three person teams into two businesses. And then the second semester you run it. Yeah. So I had the same experience. Exactly. So I've never actually talked this through with anyone. I should talk it through with Eric because we, we both participated in SME. But in hindsight now, when I really think about the lessons I learned during this process, one, I, I learned about myself, which was that at the time I was emotionally and intellectually immature. I was definitely a person who was basically doing just enough to get by. I wasn't coming to the table and being like, I have this idea, this idea, and this idea. I was very happy to collect my assignment, execute it passably, and then fall into the shadows behind my teammates. And in, in that moment in time, I think I knew it. I realized that I wasn't exactly killing it with my work ethic, but a lot of it was just in, insecurity, not really excited to speak up. And I just hadn't done or seen enough in this world to be sure of my message. And so I faded into the background. And so if, if there's a takeaway there, it's that who you are when you start college, when you come out of college, who you are two, three years after college is not who you're going to be a decade or more down the road. Because right now, I've, I've been doing the same thing, like I said, since 2007, running a business that has grown and, and achieved some level of notoriety in our little fitness bubble. And when I go on the internet and, and spew some sort of tweet or quote or something like that, I do it with confidence because I've been, I've been playing the game for long enough that I'm sure of the message and, and I'm ready to debate it if necessary. Uh, back then, I didn't have any messages to share. I was there to learn. So I guess the best thing I'd say is don't don't assume that your level of certainty and who you are and what you're doing during that first year, two, three, four, five years in the workforce is is just what it is till the end of time for you, because you just haven't got enough career capital. Uh, my second takeaway. Well, I'll tell you that we my business was called Paradise Postcards, and we had a classmate who was in our in our team whose family owned a commercial printing company. And so at the time, the internet was still pretty new. I mean, this was the late 90s. Um, we conceived this idea that we were going to create uh, Babson-branded postcards, so we are going to get pictures around campus and things that theoretically could position Babson visually very nicely and sell them on campus to students so that they could send them to friends and family around the world, basically. Here's where I go to college. What's up with you? Sort of a deal. And so we got made on the cheap, by our classmate through his family business, which was a, a lesson in business ownership. It's it's who you know and what kind of deal they can make for you. And we were really good about keeping our margins under control. We had a really deliberate game plan and inventory management strategy. And we sold some postcards. We did not win as far as selling the most, but we did run a profitable business over the course of that time. And I learned a lot about teamwork and things like that. But ultimately the the business that killed it in our space was so painfully simple and brilliant in meeting the needs of the people on campus that they smashed everybody. And I don't know how they got it approved by the, the professors, but what they did was they would get in the car, drive over to BJ's, buy a bunch of boxes of candy and granola bars and God knows what, and they somehow acquired a shopping cart. I'm going to tell myself that they did it legally. And all they did was walk the halls of the dorms every single night after 11 p.m. and sell snacks. 
and they just ran this this absurdly profitable cash based business seven nights a week. They had two team members doing shifts, just moving up down the halls. One of them was handing out the candy, the other one was collecting the cash and making change. And they didn't just just beat us. They like four, five, six x every other business as far as revenues go. And the simplicity of it was just absolutely brilliant. And so it, I guess the, the takeaway there was that we don't need to overcomplicate anything. <laughs> Figure out what people need right this moment and make it as easy as possible for them to access it. And you're going to make some money. <laughs> and so that was my FME experience. And here we are uh, now more than 20 years removed from it. And I remember it like it was yesterday. Yeah, that that is. Um, I mean, that's that's really funny that and, and kind of awesome that they had that simple of an idea. Um, but it's so brilliant. Like, how many students like you? There's nowhere to go on campus at that time to get food. Um, it's just. I mean, it's funny. Like you said, so simple um, and effective, and just going off of what you know a need is, uh, and, and just kind of running with it. Um, I think that's awesome. My, my business. Uh, I was on the sales team, and we were we sold electronic uh, portable phone chargers. Um, so that was fun. <laughs> so getting, getting to go through all of that. And I, I was very similar to you in the sense that, you know, I went there, um, to, you know, for baseball too, and just kind of looking at it as like, I don't know if it was a matter of being intimidated by the fact that there were so many smart students there. And I could say like, we were kids, we're 18 years old, we're kids, like people that have had experience from all over the world, like who, who ran a business before they got to campus, like you, you met some incredible people and it can be really intimidating to kind of um, be exposed to that. And I kind of had the same um, experience that you did where I, I just, for that reason, for me, that was my personal reason. I kind of withdrew and just did things to get a good GPA and whatever it was, but maybe it was my being feeling that I couldn't live up or, or, or perform at the same level as some of these people that I was, you know, in class with that I had a very similar experience. No, I, I get it. And it was, it was the same back then. They, these, I guess you could say high profile young entrepreneurs all over campus. I mean, they, I don't know if it's there anymore, but they had something called the hatchery, which was basically financing on campus businesses. It was, it was like you find your own VC on campus and, and kids were going in and pitching and collecting funding there. And to me, that was terrifying. I mean, I was just a kid from, like I said, the suburbs of Boston, who really was just trying to keep his head above water. I mean, FME was no joke. I remember that the average score of that first FME exam that hits you right around oh, Thanksgiving <laughs> for us was like, I, I want to say for the entirety of the freshman class, it was like a 68 or something like that. Yeah, And it really felt like they were trying to whittle away at the people who just didn't want to be there. Because there was a pretty considerable number of transfers after the first and second semesters. That was how they got to decide, like, who really wants to graduate from this college? Because school was way harder than I thought it would be. Way, way, way harder that first year. But if you keep your head above water freshman year at Babson and and you come out of it with a passable GPA, then you're going to be perfectly fine. It's just, it's really about, do you make it to Christmas, really? Yeah. I, I, yeah, I, it's funny, like the more things change, unless they stay the same, like the time goes by, but I had the same experiences. Like you really had to, the level of work and, and effort you needed to put in 
at, at Babson to make it. Um, like I look back now, like, yeah, like I said, I went through some, some issues being homesick and whatever. And I ended up transferring after my sophomore year, but like I became a better person from a lot of the, the stuff that I had to endure when I was there, just how hard it is. Um, just, just for the listener perspective, like you're at a business school and you're, you know, you're in a finance class at nine in the morning. And then at 1130, you have like this incredibly gifted liberal arts teacher going over like, uh, you know, literature, varying literature, like the, the curriculum is just so diverse that it really is a challenge to kind of keep yourself going. Um, but I, I definitely learned, like I have some things I could look back at and say for sure that um, I can remember and point to in terms of my business education that I use today as principles that guide me. Is there anything for you throughout the course of whether it was your undergrad or your graduate experience that you can say you either leaned on when you first started um, Cressy Sports Performance or even now all these years later? Um, you know, I feel like business acumen or business ownership is far more about application of common sense than it is application of, of technical skills acquired in a classroom, Mm -hmm. in my experience. And for example, it really just takes a Google sheet or an Excel spreadsheet to put together a basic P&L and manage your numbers pretty reasonably. And if you want to really dumb it down, the policy don't spend more than you collect and you're still in business is effectively a reasonable way to run a gym when you get started because people more often than not start small. So I didn't ever come into it and say, thank God I took that, you know, that micro econ class changed the game for me. But what I did learn both undergrad and grad that just continues to pay dividends is the importance of networking. And I thought that Babson did a really nice job of hammering that message home to us all the time, which was these people who live in your hallway or in your classrooms or doing group work with you, they're all going to be connected and they're going to be the people who are going to help you find work or help you find clients or help you find funding. They're going to be your tribe. And if you don't get out of your room and go chat with those people and make some friends and interact and demonstrate an actual interest in them, you're going to be buried living alone on an island professionally. And that was huge for me because the more that I look around and think about how my career in the fitness space has moved, it's I realized that good things started to happen when I really started interacting with people outside of my own gym. And the the fitness community is is a pretty tight network and we all fight essentially the same battles and we're fighting a hell of a battle right now but what's keeping me level now for example allowing me to maintain my sanity is the fact that whether i want them to or not fellow gym owners are reaching out every single day i'm getting these like proof of life checks from people it's like people think i'm going to be jumping off a bridge or something and it's pretty awesome that these these people who are running smaller operations that are are even more exposed than mine are, are are taking the time and shooting on shooting off a message and saying hey just want to check on you see how you're doing how are things what's new and and i think that that's a testament to a lot of efforts in network building over the years and i really learned to hone that craft at babson twice yeah that's awesome yeah though no, i think that the, the point you made on the networking and the connections like 
I, even as someone that transferred and went back home, like I still keep in touch with people at, at Babson. And just when you're at a place like that with a lot of gifted individuals, you're going to cross paths with people that you may not know it at the time. I mean, yeah, there's going to be people there that already are doing significant things, but down the road, especially like after you graduate or whenever you're done uh, there, if you transfer, you graduate, whatever it is, like you're going to have come across some people that will do some impressive things in the next decade or two. So I think that's a really good point. And I think even more just beyond the walls of Babson, like in life, like the people that you you come across and building quality relationships. And my mother always said to me, networking, networking. It's like, yeah, like it, it, did she say it to me a lot? Maybe too many times, probably. But like you realize how important it is. And you just look at something like, you know, maybe shifting gears now a little bit into, you know, the start of Cressy Sports Performance. Like you go to Babson, you room with Eric and he transfers out and then the both of you come back together and you found this business you 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 create this business um and i guess that is it's obviously a great segue but what really brought the two of you back together was it just hey i'm i majored in exercise science and i have this ability and you are really good with business so we can come together like what was that and and maybe what need did you identify that the public or that athletes had that you were trying to solve when you created it well, back at that time, what loosely kept us together, kind of not professionally, but socially up until that moment in time, was an, a borderline obsession with the Boston sports scene. So we were we were neurotic Red Sox and Patriots fans, and to an extent Celtics and Bruins, but. It was. I think you could really argue that it was the Red Sox and it was the Patriots that kept Eric and I socializing, uh, typically in a digital format, between the years of like 2001 and 2007. So, for example, in, in 2004, when the Red Sox won their first World Series in 80-something years, and we felt like that was a really big deal to us at the time, for some reason, uh, <laughs> as fans. Eric, I remember, he, he drove up from Connecticut and he came to my apartment to watch that that clinching game just outside of Boston. And he actually brought Tony Genelcore, who was our our third co-founder. And this was years, you know, three, four years before we started a business. And that was the only time before we started our business that I had met Tony. But Tony came through and watched the game too. So back then, that was when I like I met the crew kind of a deal. And it was just through sports. So we just kept this ongoing going dialogue where it was like, Hey, you know, we should, we should catch a Red Sox game this year. Haven't seen you for a year or so. Let's go out to Fenway and get a game. And we did that for a couple of years until we reconvened. But what happened was after Eric finished grad school at UConn and he did some work down there and decided eventually to move up here to Massachusetts, he took an independent contractor role at a small performance training facility about halfway between where I was living and where Babson was. And I was commuting to Babson for grad school at that time. I was in the MBA program and he didn't have friends up here, and he was just getting to work. So he shot me a message and said, hey, I live in the area. I'm coaching at this gym. It's, it's not that far from Babson. Why don't you come by and get a lift in? And so I did, and it was, it was on my ride. Typically on my way back from school, I'd stop, and I'd show up for their staff lift. And sometimes uh, Tony G would be there getting a lift in. Sometimes there were some combine prep guys from BC getting their training sessions in. And basically, I learned the ins and outs of the weight room, training with four or five guys who were doing combine prep. 
And, and I mean, I'm telling you, I had never got a lift in in my life. I was terrified of the weight room. And there I was learning how to squat and deadlift with Tony, who at first sight looks like a monster. I mean, big guy, big arm, shaved head. And I, I came to realize he was this big teddy bear, but he was, he was pretty terrifying at first. And I cut my teeth in the fitness phase, basically training with guys who were getting ready to do you know, test their 40 and do 225 bench tests. And it was a good way to get thrown into the fire. And I caught the bug very quickly in that environment. So that was, say, October of 2006. That was when I got my first taste of it. Next thing you know, I was I was lifting at least four days a week with those guys. Would never miss a training session. I had Eric outlining all this, you know, the supplements I needed to buy from Biotest over on T-Nation because I was huge back then. And it was like, I was all in, I think I put on 25 pounds of muscle in that first year. Cause I had like that newbie, like fresh into the weight room, soccer player thing going on. And, uh, I fell in love with it. And that spring, right before graduation, Eric and I entertained the idea of trying to acquire the gym that he was coaching out of. And we ultimately pivoted away from that and said, you know what, let's start our own place in a footprint that we like with the exact business model that we like. And we got Tony involved because Tony was coaching at, I think sports club LA in Boston at the time. And we just threw ourselves into it on like no notice a Friday afternoon. Eric said, I'm doing this. You want in. And by Monday morning, the three of us were sitting in, in a, a basically a subletted small space on the outskirts of a baseball batting cage. And the rest is history. I guess here we are a decade and a half later. Yeah, that's that's a cool story, and I think um, something that I definitely want to talk to you about, as you mentioned, subletting and, and being next to a batting cage, and um, I, I had a similar start myself, and I think that is a huge uh, thing in terms of having success early on in terms of overhead and all that stuff, and I want to get to that, but um, I, what I want to I want to ask, so this is like 2006, um, I, I'm obviously from Jersey, and I'm a big Joe DeFranco guy, so I know the impact that he had in like the 2004, five, six, seven area of like making warehouse gyms more prominent, um, and seeing that kind of explode from the maybe more so less of that, like kind of, um, how should you say like that big box type of facility people were going to like a Parisi to more of like, Hey, this is, this is the neighborhood guy. He started a facility. And if it grows, you turn into a national name, of course, like, like Cressy did, but, um, what were you guys like? What was really the like the outlook back then? Like a lot has changed in fifteen years, fourteen years of how baseball players are trained and the mindset of it. Like there was a really good opportunity. I don't know if you knew it at the time and if it was something you guys thought about or like I'm sure now you look back and you realize it. But there weren't a lot of places doing things the way that you know Cressy Sports Performance and now other places are doing them today and over the course of the last decade. Was that something you guys realized and looked to capitalize on? Um, well, I, I will agree with you. There was, there was a very small handful of players whose names were visible on a national kind of landscape. And so DeFranco was one that I was aware of. Um, we were not at all far from Mike Boyle strength and conditioning. And I yes, think of NBSC yep. kind of as like the, the godfather of this private sector strength training space, because I, I grew up in Winchester, which is the town where MBSC's first facility was. I grew up less than a mile from where Mike opened and never trained there once <laughs> was just, it wasn't a gym guy, 
but I was so close to it. So it had been on my radar since the mid to late nineties when they first got launched. Uh, but when we decided to do this in 2007, yeah, there was, there was a handful of names. It was, it was Boyle. It was DeFranco. Uh, I think maybe JC Santana, um, Alan Cosgrove. There was, there was just this small collection. And it's funny at, at the time we probably thought to ourselves like, Oh, this market's saturated or athletes performance, things like that. But in hindsight, that's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. There was, I couldn't even name 10 national players off the top of my head when we got going. And now I can name 10 competitors in a 15-mile radius of my gym. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's amazing how much that competitive landscape has shifted. And I'm sure we did something to contribute to that. But this, this warehouse-style gym that you're talking about, or I guess the real estate enthusiasts would refer to it as flex space, um, we, we just knew what we didn't want and then we went from there so we didn't want i remember i sat down with with eric and his now wife anna in our our kind of brainstorming night and we were like well what do we need for equipment and eric's kind of only rule was i'd like high ceilings i want to be able to drop weights and i don't want any mirrors on the walls and that was it <laughs> that's that's kind of what we started with and we went from there and so we definitely 1000% did not start our gym and say, all right, how can we build this in a way that we're going to have a huge social media audience someday? Yeah. And we're going to have a nationally recognizable brand. We were 100% saying, how can we build something that people will show up with money in their pockets and offer it to us in exchange for training? And that was it. We wanted the we wanted to be the best gym in our town, not the most recognizable gym on Instagram. Yeah. Yeah, it's it, you, I have that I have that as a, as a tweet that I want to get to with you. Um, and you mentioned I think like the the way you just described doing it the opposite way is like building backwards. Like that's not the way you want to go about it. Like you mentioned in your tweet, and we're going to get to this in sp uh, specifically in a little bit. But like you know, become known on social media because of what you're doing. Like I look at it this way, um, and I can say this from my own experience. Like. All I ever posted on my social media for like two straight years was literally videos of what I was doing with the athletes in my facility. And it just like people have a way of catching on with something where they can feel like it's real, it's authentic. Actual people are coming into this place and they're enjoying it and they're liking the product and the the, the service and it just kind of goes from there. I think that was a great point that you mentioned and really cool that that was your thought process when you guys were kind of starting out. Yeah, I would never tell anyone, hey, you're not allowed to post on social media early. You're doing the wrong things. I think there are enough people standing on their pedestal on the internet yelling at millennials about <laughs> trying to take shortcuts or something like that. Um, all I will tell you is that I didn't open a Twitter account or publish a blog or launch my own website until 2015. And at that point in time, I had over seven years of, of time in the game learning what I don't know, <laughs> you know, I, I, everything I've published at this point in time is about a lesson that I learned by messing up first and adjusting. And I just had this, this massive accumulation of ideas that I didn't even know I had at that moment in time. It was, it was just this accumulation of experiences. And I didn't realize that I had this backlog of content just waiting to be tapped into 
after eight years of, of running the gym and growing it and negotiating leases and lining up insurance for my business and arguing with landlords and finding the hidden expenses that people don't anticipate and learning business tax code and basically getting my ass kicked every single day for eight years. And that is why the social media thing I think works for me now from an engagement standpoint. When I put stuff up, it seems to play pretty well. And it's because it's just truth. You know, it's it's just, it, I'm, I'm not making stuff up. I'm not pulling concepts out of a book and regurgitating them as my own ideas. I'm saying, hey, we did this. It sucked. Here's how we adjusted. Good news is we're still alive. And that's that's the entirety of my content strategy. And I... I hope that answers your question. <laughs> no, it, it definitely does. I, I think um, that you, you hit the nail on the head too. Like the idea that, you know, you have to have, especially in this industry, that you have to have some like magical thing. Like we were always taught at BAPS and like entrepreneurial thought and action, like identify a need, try to solve it. Like there's really, it's it's so much simpler in, in the strength conditioning and fitness industry. Like, all the need is, is people need to go somewhere where they can get quality training. And it's like, it's not this big mythical, like crazy thing you have to try to solve. Just provide quality day in and day out. And like, you're going to eventually build. And if you make good decisions, like you mentioned before, like, you know, don't bankrupt yourself with dumb decisions, like having equipment, like $200,000 worth of equipment, uh, you know, financed and, and all this crazy stuff. Like, find the bare bones way to kind of get going. I think that's, that's a really, I wouldn't have expected that answer because I think a lot of people would see the success that you guys have had. And I also think a little bit of me saying that comes from the fact that you did it, you know, 14, 15 years ago. And I, I, in my mind sometimes feel like something had to be majorly different back then than it is now. And there are things, but, um, it's still massively. It's yeah, but nothing is, nothing has changed in terms of the fact that you build a successful business by delivering a good service when it comes to fitness and strength training. Yeah. And I will say it's not lost on me how important first mover advantage is. Mm. And the fact that we just, we got to the game on the early side. I, I'm aware of that. I know there's a certain level of luck involved, but I think I heard, I believe it was Gary V say the other day, first is great, but best always wins. Yep. And so there is a point in time where the argument that, oh, you guys got there so early that of course you did well. Well, that, that runs its course. You wouldn't have lasted this long. Yeah. You <laughs> ex- exactly. Eventually you're, you're going to, you're going to fall to your level or rise to your level. Yep. And, and I believe that somewhere along the line, we kind of allowed that like first to market and best in market to intersect and then kind of live there. Yeah. And and I hope that that we can continue to stay kind of in that top five or ten percent of the industry and and keep evolving and adjusting the business model as we go. Yeah, and and it's not again a great point about those two things intersecting. You could make the argument, and I don't even think you would call it an argument. It's just a fact that if you're like I, I started my business in 2016, like it wasn't because I wasn't first. It was I'm just I'm 25. I, I like I couldn't have started it any earlier. But I had to, and and this could be said, I guess, for people that are starting these businesses these days, like if the X area on the graph is being first, you're going to be really low on that end. Um, and there's nothing you're going to do about that, but you can control the quality and you can offset. Would you agree? You can offset the fact that you're kind of late into the game by just offering just really, really, really good quality that maybe only the top 10% of people are offering and you can overcome that. Right. Yeah. And remember the point 
there isn't a whole lot of earning potential in being the most visible brand on the internet. The earning for gym owners is in being the best in your town. Yep. And so we're, we're spending too much time collectively getting stressed about not being first to market in the fitness space because, you know, if you're running a gym in, I don't know, Southern California, and you're worried that you've, you started a baseball gym in SoCal, but you're 13 or 14 years behind Cressy Sports Performance, which happens to be geographically as far as you could possibly be from us, then you're worrying about the wrong things yeah. because there are baseball players everywhere. Most of them have expendable income, or at least they did 90 days ago. <laughs> and they, they need a service that doesn't require them getting on a flight. And more often than not, in-person outperforms a digital service model. So I'm at a distinct disadvantage in relation to the new but competent and quality gym owner in Southern California in selling my digital services to them when there is a good brick-and-mortar facility locally. So the people who are saying to themselves, well, I'm not going to do this because Mike Boyle started a facility in the 90s. Why would I jump in now? I'm too far behind, are out of their minds. Mike would look them in the eye and say, what is wrong with you? None of us, none of us are here to compete with people outside of our immediate market unless we're selling ebooks, unless we're selling, you know, digital subscriptions. And that's we're not talking about that. We're talking about gym ownership. Yeah, that's a really good point. I, I remember Joe, Joe D said it on his show once, and I will say um, I don't listen to it as much anymore because I'm just very busy like, living this now. But I was a big part of my rotation as I just started out my business. And I remember him saying once, like, why the hell do you care if you have 50,000 followers if 49,000 of them are from states that are nowhere near yours or countries that are nowhere near you? Like, and you have a model that relies on the in-person aspect. Like, it, it's just, it, it makes no sense. If you're going to be in a, in, a, in a field where you want to create a membership for, for the online community and ebooks, like you said, like, yes, that makes sense. But it, it's just a faulty or a uh, misconception, so to speak, in terms of thought process if you're worried or consumed with that. And I would, I, so I agree, you, you hit the nail on the head there for sure. Yeah, you'd hear my business partner, Eric, would say you're studying for the wrong test. Yeah. Um, He's a big fan of cliches. He's got some good ones. <laughs> yeah. I, I, hey, they, they, listen, they, they're simple, they work, and they, they get the point across. Um, all right, so I, I want to ask now, and I, I had planned this question already, but then you mentioned uh, the first space that you guys walked in, and you were near, I think you said, a, a batting, uh, uh, a tunnel type of thing. Um, I would, I, the, the, the question that I always kind of get and I want to relate to you is I always get the question of like, how did you get where you are in a couple of years where all this other stuff? And I always say like the biggest thing that's helped to me is low overhead. Um, it sounds like you guys sort of took that route based on how you described it before, but I'm curious a little bit about your own story and then some of your thoughts and advice for, for any uh, gym owners that are listening or coaches that want to kind of get in the, into this industry, the importance of keeping low overhead and any tips to do that. Well, we did start small. We had about 2,200 square feet in a really grungy batting and pitching instruction facility. And we had a subletted handshake agreement. So I, I wrote a check for $1,000 a month and handed it to the guy who was really paying rent on the space. And that was it. Kept it simple. We didn't have a lease agreement. We basically said, we don't know what we have here. We might grow bigger. We might need more space. We don't know. But for now, that corner over there in your space, it's not being used. What if we gave you a thousand bucks a month to, to squat in it, basically? And he was cool with it. Gave him a little bit of cash flow. We, we generated foot traffic into his space and the right kind of foot traffic because baseball players come into a batting cage facility 
it was definitely mutually beneficial. Uh, so we were not handcuffed in any way by our lease situation because we grew super fast from from July of 2007 until the spring of 2008. We very quickly realized we need a lot more than 2,200 square feet. We were doing, you know, 30, 40, 50 training sessions a day out of a really small space in these tight windows of time. Because since the beginning, we've basically been open from like noon until 7 p.m. on weekdays. That's it. And we we quickly had to pivot and find commercial real estate that was a better fit for us spatially as far as square footage goes. And we had to sign our first lease and put on our big boy pants and really like commit to something. And so we did. We jumped into 6,600 square feet in another building down the road. And we didn't have a break a lease to do it. We didn't burn any bridges with the guy who we had been paying rent to before. It just worked. And we'd given ourselves the flexibility to jump when we needed to. And that that isn't always easily um, executed for other gym owners. It's hard for me to say, yeah, go out and find, find a place where you can just promise to show up with a rent check each month, but you're not actually legally obligated to do so. I realize that's not the norm. But what advice I would give coming out of this is that we felt the momentum when we signed that that first, I think we signed a three-year initially on 6,600 square feet. And, and we really felt positive momentum. We were starting to become confident in what we were doing and what we were offering. And we said to the landlord before signing, hey, we intend to outgrow this space and we want to do it before the conclusion of this lease. If and when that time comes, will you work with us? Can you find us some space in your building where we can get additional square footage? And would you be willing to tear up the lease when that time comes so that we can renegotiate? And he said, 100%. And just being transparent with them that that was what we wanted, he was on the lookout for us pretty quickly. And we made it about 18 months, and that 6,600 square feet wasn't quite enough. And so they knocked down a wall and gave us another 1,000 square feet of office space, and we renegotiated the lease. And then when we outgrew that, we moved into our current space, which is more than double that footprint. And that was in the middle of a lease term. And he tore it up, and we started again. And so the best piece of advice I could give is to be transparent with your landlord and foster that relationship. Kiss some ass with landlords if you have to. <laughs> be a good tenant. Be be a good tenant because when a when a pandemic hits, they'll come to you and they'll say, hey, I got you. I'm going to take care of you if you've been great. Um, for the record, we are paying rent and, and continuing to be a good tenant as it is right now. But if I went to that landlord and I said, hey, we are strapped. Like this is, this has kicked us in the teeth far harder than we expected to. I can't make rent. I am 99% certain he'd say, Hey, I'm going to work with you. Let's figure something out. Let's figure out a way to defer it. Let's figure out a way to spread it out over the back half of 2020 or early 2021. He'd do right by us. I'm positive of it, but it's because we always made rent on time and we've been nothing but transparent with him since that start. So that's my best piece of advice. Tell your landlord what you hope to accomplish. Be honest that you want to outgrow what you're signing on for and and just be a good tenant. And the good news is there's going to be a massive volume of available real estate here in the very near future and and a lot of desperate landlords that need to fill it. So if you, as crazy as it sounds like, people think, why would I ever start a gym right now? Well, 6, 12, 18 months from now, we're going to have a lot of dead gyms a lot of dead real estate, and the same amount of people in this world who need fitness instruction. So it's not it's not the most outlandish thing to ask if you're thinking about this to be brainstorming how and where to start a gym. It's just not the right minute 
But if we're talking months down the road, there's going to be a lot of opportunity there, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I think you, you made a good point too. Like, and the story is, is really relates to it as well. Like incrementally just growing. I think a lot of, I've seen this in my area, people who have these massive space, like, would you agree? And, and I'm sure you would based on the story you just told, you should let the space be based on your growth and, and basically busting out the seams and then moving on to your next appropriate space versus saying, okay, here's this big space and I'm going to fill it, right? Like that's a recipe for disaster. Oh yeah. My, my policy is, I guess I have a forward policy on space adjustments and staff growth and it is grow when it hurts. Mm-hmm. And so I don't add a team member unless my entire staff is operating at or above 98% capacity. And I don't add square footage unless my business is functioning, I'd say, at 90 plus percent capacity continuously. And so you gotta, you've, you've got to get to the point where your systems are about to break to make that move. And if you follow that rule, then you don't get broken by, by a circumstance like this. Like, for example, we're in, I'm 15,100 square feet of space. It's not a small gym. It's, it's a pretty good rent check each month, and it's, it's tough overhead. But at the same time, we've been oper- operating pretty lean as far as our staff goes because as we've got um, better at what we do, we've been getting poached in, in a good way. You know, some coaches, like our pitching coaches, are all going into pro ball and getting cool opportunities, and there's, there's development opportunities. And as staff members have moved on into new cool opportunities, uh, we have slid existing staff members into new roles without replacing them because we've got our eye on the calendar. And we knew that the spring is when we get thin on clientele and we're just not payroll heavy right now because timing wise, we, we manage the calendar pretty closely and, and we run a fairly efficient business so we can continue to, you know, we're, we're going to make payroll this week again for the third or fourth time since shutting down. And I put a rent check in the mail this afternoon and, and we're going to keep going. And it's because we've always taken that grow when it hurts approach, not that build it and they will come mindset. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a really good way to put it. Um, I, I, I also want to ask you too the equipment side of things, right? Like, Seeing and I and the the references I keep making are people that I've seen in my area, like the people that are, you know, burdening themselves with a tremendous amount of financed equipment. Like again, I, I honestly I could tell you I did not mean for this to be a good segue, but it's the first tweet that I had lined up of yours that I wanted to talk about. Um, I mean, just read it at this point. Your clients don't care what brand specialty bar you use if your logo was screened onto the $1,500 platforms or if you sprung for the Kaiser instead of a no-name cable column. All they want is an authentic training environment. Invest in that. So this has two two questions that I want to ask you on this. The first one is what I was just kind of alluding to in burying yourself in debt for equipment when that's not the driving force of your business. The other is um, speak more on that authentic training environment and, and, and investing in that. Um, how do you – how would you advise a, a new gym owner to not get caught up in the fact that some people do want that shiny looking uh, tool or they want to go to the place that has some of those things? Like how do you get your head around that and, and be okay with the fact that you're not going to do that? Well, I think you need to be clear with yourself about what your optimal client avatar is. I don't want to fill my gym with people who are enamored with shiny equipment. It's, it's not the target market for us, but 
if I did, you know, if I was two or three towns over, we're, we're very close to some of the, the highest earning communities in Massachusetts and the, the wealthiest parts of our state. If I opened a gym in Equinox or something like that in their area, yeah, I'd have, I'd have the most beautiful lineup of Kaiser equipment you can imagine because those people are there for that. They, they want to tell their friends that they go to the gym with the sauna and the spa and the things of that nature. But that's not who we serve in my gym. And that's not who the gym owners who follow me on social media serve. Like there, there aren't a whole lot of managers at Equinox or Lifetime Athletics just sitting there holding their breath, hoping that I'm going to say something that's going to be valuable to their big box gym. So the target market that we take care of are the people who want to get strong. They want to be excited to go to the weight room and they want to show up for camaraderie. So the best example I could give you is, look, we've had uh, a gym that could loosely qualify as world-class in this, this fitness space. We train professional athletes basically. Well, we've never owned and never will own a platform. Like we just don't. We we took a bunch of those four by six horse stall rubber mats and put some extras down in the area where we wanted to deadlift. And we we're like, all right, those are deadlift stations. And that's the way it's always been. Mm-hmm. And I promise you that if I if I outfitted my gym with beautiful, like glossy hardwood with the CSP logo in between the plates on each side and someone came to tour the space and they went home and their dad was like, all right, tell me about it. What do you want me to pay for? No kid goes home and it's like, dad, you should see these deadlifting platforms. <laughs> they're beautiful. No, they come in and they're like, dad, it was crazy. The music was blasting. It was chaotic, but organized at the same time. People were smiling. People like they—they were giving fist bumps after lifts. It's—it's it's like the people there actually genuinely cared about each other. It was strange. That's what they're signing up for. Nobody, nobody is there and going home and being like, "God, Dad, you got to see this wall-mounted Kaiser. It was beautiful. <laughs> I need your credit card." <laughs> just, Those kids are miserable to train too, in my experience. Like the ones that aren't in it for the right reasons. Like again, I keep making DeFranco references, but he's had some good refer- some good uh, advice that he's dropped, and he mentions like the first client he ever quote unquote fired. Um, he had had this little 500 square foot warehouse gym and basically, you know, this kid came in and he just like wasn't there for the right reasons and just became a drag to train. And he reached out to the parents and listen, like, I don't think that your, your son aligns with what we're doing here. Like maybe there's a better fit somewhere else. And it grew his reputation as like, people were like, man, like this is a serious place. Like they literally kicked someone out of here. Like we got to go to this place. Like what the hell's going on here? Like it, it, this seems like it's a, it's, there's some serious stuff going on. So I think that's something uh, I, I valued and, and held close to me as well. That kind of relates. Yeah. That is the authenticity I spoke of in that tweet. It's, it's holding true to, to actually building the environment that you claim you set out to build. And one client is not going to make or break any of us. So if you've got a toxic client, you got to kick them to the curb. And, and I think I tweeted about this yesterday or the day before where I said, we, I hear a lot of people asking these questions of each other. Like, what have you, what have you changed during the quarantine that you're definitely going to keep when you come back? What have you shifted in your business? That's great. You know, everyone's saying, Oh, zoom's awesome. Digital's going to be great. This is going to stick around more. And, and it obviously will in some capacity. And I challenge people to ask themselves, what are you going to never do again when you get back? And, and I know, uh, there are a lot of gyms that should go back and fire one or two clients. And and this is a time where gyms honestly are not in a great position to be firing clients. But 
that's how important it is to get what Jim Collins would say, the right people on the bus. And you have this opportunity to kind of rebuild from nothing to an extent. We had a staff meeting about this this afternoon. And I said, hey, we had to revise our waivers. Every person who comes in the gym from, from the moment we open up again until the end of time, whether they have been there six days a week for 10 years or never before, every one of them is going to sign this new waiver that protects us from bacteria and things of that nature. It's, it's the way it goes. And guess what? We get to start from zero. We're starting from scratch. This is where we can reinvent our systems. This is where we can get back on the same page with what we want and need in our space. This is an opportunity to reset. And that same rule applies to your clientele. If there's somebody who you hate training, there's a client that you can't stand chasing for money. There's a client who will not stop bitching about God knows what in the warm-up area every day in front of their clients. Now's the time to fire them. And it seems counterintuitive. They're going to be like, you need my money. And you're going to be like, you know what? That's the exact attitude that I don't need. Go kick rocks. And that's, that's some advice I have for other gym owners is don't compromise on the importance of culture and training environment to make a couple hundred bucks today if it's going to cost you tens of thousands of dollars down the road. Yeah. And you, like you said, like you're going to need my money. Well, I, I haven't for the last two months because you haven't been here because yeah. you haven't been open. So I think, I think I'm going to be okay. Um, yeah. And that's definitely the client that did not reach out and say, Hey, I want to make sure you guys are there on the other end of this. Can I prepay for a couple months of training? Yeah. Or, or I've, I've, I've been so blessed. I had a, a couple fathers and parents say, you know, we're still working. We have jobs that we're working remotely and we have not skipped a beat with money. Like here's what we normally pay you, even though you're only providing remote services right now, just, just take it. Like you've done well, you've done right by our kids. Like you know, I, I'm lucky to be still be working and I don't want you to, you know, be hurt by this. Like, here's what uh, I would normally pay you this month, even though you're just doing online programming. Or I know we missed the last two weeks of March because you had to shut down and we pay monthly. Like when we start over, like, let's forget about that. And just start from new. Like those are the type of people you want to keep around you. Exactly. Yeah. Build your business around those people for sure. Yeah. All right, so the next tweet that I wanted to get into, and this I thought was a really interesting one. Um, our business had a record year in 2019. We spent $0 on advertising. You can pour money into social media and spend, uh, social media, I think it was supposed to be uh, ad spending, or you can pour energy into developing relationships. Trust me on this, leads generated via word of mouth are a- easier to retain than those purchased on Facebook. Yeah, I mean, we're... We're fortunate to have have never invested in traditional advertising. Uh, I don't have a a Facebook marketing or Instagram or anything like that ad spend budget to us. Um, Money well spent would be put in T-shirts with our logo on the on the kids who are influencers locally in in our community. Uh, That's the how we marketed in year one. The first twelve to eighteen months, every kid who paid for an assessment got a t-shirt with our logo on the front and our website on the back. And those shirts just started finding their way into locker rooms and on the sidelines of fields. And it, it was the word of mouth that we needed. And so we did all of this, this business development extremely organically. And we've had 5,300 people through our doors in Massachusetts since 2007. And I have spent less than $5,300 on advertising in 14 years. So it's, it's been about just delivering a product that people can't shut up about. Yeah. 
I, I, I can not for the life of me remember how he framed it, but when I had Mike Boyle on, he talked about, um, he had two different words for it. Uh, marketing being like spending money to like show people, um, you know, what you're doing or whatever it is, something along those lines. And then basically, again, can't remember the word, but it was put really well. Um, just, let's just call it exposure because I can't remember the word, but like, Getting business or be getting um, people drawn to your business because they're just seeing the good things that you do is completely different than like actively putting some something out there to like force someone to see it in that sense. Like I'm I'm right on you, you know, right on the same page you on that one. Um, you know, the the word of mouth is you eventually create like an army of people. Like I have kids that like have a sense of pride in going to tell other kids that they need to come train at my facility. Like it's, it's a cool thing to see that. And like you said, authenticity is kind of the stem of all of it. Like you can't not fake that. Like it's something that just happens because you deliver a good service and it's a, it's a place people want to be. Well, this is part of why it's so imperative that we educate our clients on why we're doing what we're doing and not just how. Yes. Because it's as much as it's important to the athlete to understand our rationale because it's going to help for motivational reasons. It's also equipping them to be salespeople for your product. And so the better job you do of explaining why some component of your programming was integrated that they weren't expecting or why you approach warmups or conditioning or anything like that in a unique way. It, it far outweighs them properly executing the program. It means that if they find their way into, say, team lift with the football team at 6 a.m. on a Monday, and they're saying, no, look, I can't, I can't back squat. It bugs my shoulders. Over at Cresty's place, they had me front squatting, or we used a specialty bar. Or, you know, they, and they say, like, here's what I learned. Here's why. And the teammate's like, oh, I feel the same way. i got to figure it out. And they're like, come on over with me come for my next lift. I mean, in our first year that we were open, we used to leave an assessment slot open every single afternoon with the mindset that some idiot high school kid is going to show up with a parent who, or with a kid who did not have a waiver signed by a parent and ask if they could do an evaluation on the fly that day. It was happening like three, four times a week and we were leaving the spot open. So we were never turning away business and we were creating digital waivers that parents could sign and get back to us instantaneously. And it was all word of mouth. And we got to a point where we were actually saying to to kids, like, yeah, you know, if you shoot us a text message and say, hey, I'm coming and I'm bringing a friend, can you get evaluated? The answer was always yes. Yeah. Always. And so we were just facilitating word of mouth. But the key is you can't expect people to just intuitively understand how to articulate your services. So you got to be repeating all the time to your guys. You understand why we're doing this? Remember why we put that in there? Why do you think that's there? And, and just engage them in the process and they become, I mean, one, they become great salespeople Two, They get to a point where you get a real dedicated client who's been with you six, 12, 18 months. They get to a point where they're like effective coaches. They're, they're better than the interns for their first three weeks of an internship. And you, you have basically created an army of super low maintenance clients who are super high engaged with the process. Yeah, you mentioned the assistant coaches, like how nice it is that when a new athlete comes in the facility and, you know, you can say to a veteran, like, hey, make sure that they understand this or whatever. It's like having a second pair of eyes on you. And you're right, like they become like another coach on the floor. Um, and, and it just kind of shows that like having those athletes know why we're doing things or why you're doing things is important. Just it's twofold. Like they can, you know, be a really good, uh, you know, build walking billboard for you. And they could also help the culture inside the facility itself. And that's a great point. 
Exactly. They pride themselves on being yep. being seen as as like lifers. There, I've got a number of clients who would be insulted if you walked up to them and were like, "Hey, you want me to walk you through your foam rolling today?" <laughs> They'd be like, "The hell out of here! I've been around longer <laughs> than you." And so you gotta you gotta build those type of clients and then hold on to them forever because their lifetime value is it's immense. Absolutely. Uh, you have time for one more? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Don't be angry. And it, I, I loved this one because I feel like it's a battle that all of us go through as, as business owners when someone in your fee, in your area is, is just does something that annoys you and it's like hard to not um, – I, I want to like kind of put this as my phone background next time I get pissed off what someone does around here that annoys me. But <laughs> don't be angry that your competition made claims to be better than they actually are. Be excited. If you're as superior to them as you believe yourself to be, this is going to be an easy battle to win. In just about all aspects of life, the cream seems to rise to the top. Well, I, I think this this one's twofold. We we have two kinds of gym owners out there, and imagine you're the you're the one who was angry to start. In this case, you either are actually better than the the people who you're competing with, or you're not, and you got to learn the hard way. And the hard way is is struggling to retain business and struggling to generate business but let's assume that you are as good as you believe yourself to be well who cares about somebody's lazy approach to marketing and and them churning out a bunch of claims that they can't justify or back up with actual training outcomes those those are the businesses that come and go i mean they're as much as i say we have 10 different businesses within a 10 minute drive of us that we're competing with Eight of them aren't going to be here in 18 to 24 months. And you know what? Eight new ones are going to pop up after that. So there's always going to be options for our clients to consider. But like I said before, when I said first first is great, but best always wins, all you need to focus on is being the best. Just, just deliver a better service experience. And who cares what someone else is saying on the internet? Because as we said, we're not spending any money on advertising over here, but we're filling the weight room. And, and it's really just because we've committed to the quality of that product, not to hammering home some messaging strategy on social media about how we're, you know, we're Hudson Mass best gym or something along those lines. We don't need to say it. Our clients are preaching it for us. Yeah. I, I, and I think the experiences that I've had um, are, are there's two of them. Um, the, the one I had recently is a, a, a trainer around here. Um, you know, when we're, when we're off the record, I could, I could tell you who it is. Cause you probably know who they are. Um, basically telling one of my athletes that like asking them where they went and my athletes too smart to, to kind of fall into it. He kept on answering like, Oh, I, I like where I'm going. He didn't want to tell them where he went. Um, and basically like, you need to come here. Do they have this machine? No. Do they have this machine? We could do this. We could do that. And at first I was like really, really angry. And then I looked and I said, man, like how lucky am I that I had an athlete get told that and they like went above and beyond to like kind of snuff it out. Like I'm lucky that I have that here. And honestly, like just because it's the first time I found out that it's happening from this athlete, it's been going on for the past few years and I didn't know about it and I've been okay. Like 
you have to kind of realize that stuff like that's going to happen. I guess the other part of it too has been like people maybe like they say intimidation or I'm sorry, imitation is the uh, sincere form of flattery. Like sometimes you don't look at it that way at first. Like you try to, but you're like, damn, like I'm pissed off. Like I put thought into this and I made something and I had an idea and someone's like copying it. Like you're not flattered right away. You're a little angry. Um, I think it's a tweet like this is important to keep in the back of your mind. Well, in it's human nature. I, I don't feel that way a hundred percent of the time. Yeah. <laughs> I definitely get territorial. I get irrational, but I do sleep on it and I never, you know, chirp back at somebody on the internet or anything like that. But I will say that people are always uh, business owners are going to spend their time soliciting your clients because they're, they're just, they're trying to make ends meet. They're trying to put bodies in their gym and pretty much everybody has some sort of a gym membership or some sort of a relationship with some sort of fitness service offering. So it's hard to market to somebody who isn't somebody else's client to begin with. I get it. That's going to happen. When you need to look yourself in the mirror and say, am I doing this properly? How threatened am I really? Is when other service providers, clients are saying to your clients, you got to get over here. That's when you need to really be honest with yourself and say, am I doing as well as I need to be? Mm. Am I as good as those people? Because the gyms whose clients market for them, as opposed to the gyms marketing for themselves, are borderline and unstoppable. And so, yeah, you tell me there's another gym owner who's soliciting your clients. Sure, you and everybody else on the planet. But if you told me that his 10 best, most engaged, most loyal clients were soliciting your clients, then I'd say, well, you're going to be a little bit worried, Jerry. That's no joke yeah. <laughs> because you know how engaged your top 10 are. You'd feel pretty good if you knew that those 10 were going after the other guy's top 10, wouldn't you? Because yeah. they're your people. They're yeah. your crew. They're your core. And so that's when you need to be honest with yourself and say, do I have a problem here? How am I going to adjust? Otherwise, let everybody, let every gym owner make all the claims they want about how great they are. I won't listen until it's their clients telling me. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think it goes a long way too. like, having we talk about educating the athletes like having the athletes know what they need to be doing and that they're doing what they're supposed to be and how it works with you know your facility is important because when they're told these things are like no like I, I have a good handle and knowledge of why what we're doing here and I know it's working for me like I, I'm good kind of thing like, it, it, that education goes a long way and not only the the athletes telling their friends whatever why they need to go to your facility but also for them to kind of combat someone telling them they need to go somewhere else it's like no like i know what i'm doing here like it's pretty good like here's what we do and here's why i like it i've experienced that before too so it's important to equip them with that knowledge for sure yeah and sometimes those clients need to go and experience the alternative before they realize they had it pretty good yeah they come back yeah and and you gotta you kind of gotta get over the petty mindset and welcome them back be like you know what I get it. You needed to see what else was out there. And and here we are. I'm glad you're back. Let's get back to it. And let me know what they do well over there that I can improve here accordingly because I want to make sure that we do a good job for you. And that's it. I mean, that's just this never-ending cycle of, of the competitive business landscape. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. So I like to give any guests that I have on the opportunity to, uh, you know, have any closing thoughts or, or wrap up anything we said, anything they wanted to get to, but we didn't, um, you know, so the, the microphone is yours, so to speak, if there's anything you wanted to kind of wrap up with. Oh, I don't have anything to preach. I guess what I'll say is if you're a listener who has a gym that's struggling right now in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, as, 
as this is being recorded in late April of 2020. Um, know that, or take comfort in knowing that every gym that we've mentioned, DeFranco's, Boyle's, Cressy Sports Performance, Exos, all of them, we are all getting our asses kicked right now. Every one of us. And we are all concerned about, are we going to make the next payroll? How are we going to make rent? How are we going to keep revenues moving? How are we going to bounce back when this ends? So don't feel like you are, you're alone in it. And don't assume that the supposed best gyms in America are immune to stuff like this. Cause we're all, we're all in it in the same way and, and do everything you can to keep your head above water. And hopefully you come out on the other side with a ton of opportunity, but I mean, just Godspeed. <laughs> it's the best thing I could say right now. Yeah. I think it's a great message to kind of wrap things up. Um, I want to say thank you for coming on. Uh, this was excellent. And when I theorized the, my, my goal for this podcast a year and a half ago, the management part of muscles and management was because I do have a business, uh, background and business experience. And I did want to talk, um, some of the entrepreneurial aspects of, you know, strength conditioning and sports performance. So, uh, it was, it was refreshing to kind of get a little bit of a break from the, the nuts and bolts of programming and, and training and get more into the business side. So, uh, I want to thank you for taking the time to come on. And, uh, th- this was, this was truly awesome. Awesome. So thank you. I appreciate you having me, Jerry. Good luck here moving forward. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Muscles and Management Podcast brought to you by Challenger Strength. I'm your host, Jared Filippo, signing off on the show that's changing the way we view training, sports performance, and business.